being able to really get the walls broken down a bit and get on the same level with them and, and build that level of trust quickly and being able to uncover areas that would hit the right buttons. Hi, I'm Mark Gagne. And I'm Chris Corcoran, and you're listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Tech Sales for Hustlers is a podcast where we catch up with Memory Blue alums and reminisce about their start in high-tech sales with us. Let's go get some, Corcoran. Gagne, you know I'm ready. Ruben Rosado, Memory Blue Alumni of the Year finalist, coming at us live and direct from Austin, Texas, by way of the Bronx, where the weak are killed and eaten. (laughs) Ruben, a little bit more about you. So you're currently an account executive at Confluent. And a lot of people don't know this. Well, I consider you the only YouTube star that I know. We'll talk about that too, briefly. The influencer. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks guys. Pleasure seeing you all again. And thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you. It's been a little while since you left and you were only with us for a real kind of a short moment in time, six, seven months, but we'll get into that. But before we get into it, tell us a little bit about yourself. Share a little bit about kind of where you're from, what you're like a kid, high school, college. Let's talk about that a little so people can get to know you. Yeah, for sure. And wow, I think it was even less than six, seven months. I want to say it was five. Quick launch pad to my career, <laughs> but I cherish the days there. About me, originally, as you said, from the Bronx, New York, came out in Austin, Texas, 2016, but growing up in New York, really tight-knit family. Chris makes a joke about creating my own Bronx tale, <laughs> and you're pretty spot on. My dad was a bus operator for MTA for 30 years. My mother worked for some agency. I'm still to this day not exactly sure what exactly, whether it was insurance or what have you, but my dad really raised me. was a hardworking kind of guy. Grew up working on cars and um, kind of helped him out in the garage as much as possible. And it's funny, I feel like I've always been kind of selling my entire life. I wasn't really out there uh, selling lemonade and stuff as a kid, but I was helping my dad work on cars. And when he gave me my first truck, I went ahead and quickly sold it on Craigslist because I knew the value of a four by four in New York was pretty high. And I wanted to work my way like that guy that worked from a pencil up to a Porsche, right? I went ahead and, and traded that Nissan Xterra beat up for a BMW 3 Series. I worked that up and got that thing to like 175,000 miles before I traded that for another car that I liked because I wanted something faster. And I've gone through like five or six cars in high school just working with the money I was making from working in retail and that I got from my YouTube little shindig I had going since my freshman year of high school. Hold on. This is awesome. I want to hear about this. So how old were you when you got a car? 16 and a half or something? 15 yeah. and a half? Right around there. I think I want to say it was probably 16 and a half. Yeah. So your, your old man blessed you with a Nissan Xterra and you were living in the bright lights of the New York City area? Fortunately, fortunately for my sister and I, my parents worked their butt off and got us out of the hood and to yeah. uh, Lower Westchester. So my dad was okay. up in Kingsbridge, like North Bronx, and moved up to Cortland Manor, kind of by Peekskill. So just a little further north of, you know, along the Hudson River. So when you were doing this car thing, did you know you were in sales, so to speak, or you just looked at it as like, oh, I'm just trying to improve my ride? I was like, I'm trying to improve my ride. I don't have many funds, but you know, I know what the market's calling for. And I know that 
I honestly was doing outbound before I even knew it because I had no joke, like 40 different listings of cars on Craigslist all over. I traveled down Virginia for cars. I went to Philly for cars and um, just trying to see who would be interested in trading their vehicle for mine. And I'll put like 800 bucks on top here. Uh, you know, I had a thousand dollars that I put on top there and just wheeling dealing a bit, to be honest. Some deals worked out better than others, but I was able to work my way up to like a Mustang that I had on coilovers and supercharged. And I sold that to help go to college. And uh, through college, I had a few cars as well that I, I traded and sold. And sold. So, hey, so Ruben, how'd you learn how to do this? I mean, is this just the street smarts of, of the Bronx or how'd you learn yeah. how to do wheel and deal? There was definitely a car community in, in my school, in my, my area. And my dad always taught me how to work on cars and he was purchasing vehicles off of Craigslist. So once I saw how that works and the opportunity, if you get something for a steal below the value of it and you place it for you know maybe a grand or $2,000 more than what you purchase it for, that's a quick profit, right? Or that can go towards yeah. your next car. So that's kind of how I was doing it. Make a couple of cosmetic modifications here and there to make it look like it was worth more than what it was and slowly work my way up to the car that really fit me more than just a beatable truck. <laughs> and when did the YouTube thing get going? Is that in conjunction with this or unison or what? Honestly, it's actually before I got my license, before I even got my permit. It's one of the things I regret, honestly, more and Chris to this day, because how <laughs> YouTube and TikTok, I don't have TikTok, but that the whole content creator space is huge. I have a lot of respect for people that do that. But I would say it was in 2008 or 2009 that I started and not having a lot of money again. When I had my 75 bucks or my 50 bucks to buy a pair of headphones or an iPhone case even, right? Like I want to make sure I put the best case on my phone because I put all my money into that iPhone 3G or whatever, right? So yeah, the, ones, yeah, the ones that didn't even have video recording. So I used to always watch uh, tech reviews and gadget reviews online. And I really was passionate about iPhone cases, but really enjoyed watching people review these products. And I was passionate about being able to find the best technology for the money, right? I wanted to have the best bang for my buck or the top product, that, basically the top product I can afford. So eventually I got to a point where I was like, hey, I think I can do that. Let me pick it up as a hobby. And I picked it up as a hobby, borrowing my parents' uh, little JVC camera. And I recorded my own videos, started posting them. Maybe got like a, a couple hundred views here and there. And then like one day, I think I started doing like how to jailbreak your iPhone. Hopefully it's not good in trouble for that. But I started recording how to jailbreak your iPhone. And then I had a video that was on the Beats by Dre that had 250,000 views. And what I realized is that I honestly came across the idea of like, okay, if I'm like the first one to the internet with this review on a product that everyone's excited about, that's going to help my views get up, right? And just over time, I was working my way and I started seeing like 100,000 views here, 300,000 views here. And I'm like, okay, this is great. So now I'm that guy that's waiting in line for the newest iPhone to come out because I want to be the first one with an unboxing video. I want to be the first one with this case for it. And, and I, I just, honestly, I enjoyed it too. It was a little hobby. Never showed my face on any of the videos because I was a jock in high school and I was afraid I would get bullied for being a nerd. And that's another one of my biggest regrets. <laughs> But quickly, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. so you didn't show your face because like you thought people were going to crush you at school because you're because yeah. you're an athlete. Yeah, pretty much. And I regret that because the ones that 
were very successful, had a good relationship with their viewers. They were able to like connect with their viewers by, you know, making it more real and saying like, hey, this is who I am. This is like what I do. And I saw those people go on to have 100,000 plus subscribers, 500,000 subscribers. I think I just checked the other day, actually. I, I still have 4,000 subscribers and I haven't posted anything in like a decade. Or- <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So... I actually was able to partner with Google AdSense way back when. So every time someone clicked on an ad, I would get five cents. So I started getting more creative with my videos. And it was pretty cool to see me, you know, a 15-year-old, like I think I started when I was 14 years old, being able to like reach out to these companies and say, hey, this is my audience. This is the market I talk to. I can help you get more traffic to your site, more potential customers. If you go and partner with me on a giveaway or if you go and send me some free products, because honestly, I wanted some free products. And I got some partnerships. I got free headphones from some pretty well-known companies, Griffin Technologies, Belkin, Grotto, Grotto Labs. And I was like, I didn't know at the time, but now looking back on it, like talking to you guys, that literally was like cold outbound outreach. That was cold outreach, right? So I'm, I'm reaching out to like these people that are, I must've got their emails just off of the website, like the about us or uh, contact or info at xcompany.com. And I was showing them like my, here's my latest three videos, what they did with views. Here's my channel. Here's what I have to offer. Like, what can we partner on? Some would just give me a discount code. Some would actually send me free products. And that was like when I really was like, okay, I'm doing something cool here and I'm going to keep doing this. And unfortunately, when I went to college, it died out completely. So definitely a regret of mine, but I think it was a good experience. I learned a lot from it. (laughs) So going back to what Chris said, what drove you to do that? Why? Why did you do that? Because this is a great thing. But most normal people, 15, 16, most people don't start doing YouTube reviews and like hawking cars or upselling cars. And like, where did that come from? Is this you or what? I mean, maybe it's me, but you never saw someone do something and you're like, oh man, I can do that or I can do that better. I had friends that were older than me that were able to trade their cars on Craigslist. And I was like, I can do that too. And I was watching these YouTube videos and I was like, man, I can do that. And I think I bring a young hip take to it because a couple of people I was watching on YouTube were a little bit older. So I thought I can do it, right? I was like, if anything, these people can do it. I can do it maybe better. So, All right. right. So you went to college and what were you like in college? Where'd you go to school? What'd you major in? Yeah, I went to Coastal Carolina University. Go Shants. You guys might know we won the Baseball World Series a few years while back now, but just this past football season, we beat BYU. We were undefeated. It was Mullets versus Mormons. That was what the game was, uh, <laughs> that game. But yeah, Coastal Carolina, nobody in my family had ever been to South Carolina before. And for me, it was like, am I going to spend $30,000 to go to some upstate, basically Canada school and freeze my butt off? Or am I going to be by the beach and get a good education at the same time? So went down to South Carolina and Coastal Carolina was an amazing time. And at Coastal, I was uh, majoring in business administration and business management. And funny enough is after my sophomore year, I had a good friend, Connor Kennedy, who was telling me how his brother made 35000 in the summer selling timeshares. And I'm like, I need some money. Like, that sounds pretty good to me. And luckily, he and I both landed interviews at Wyndham Vacation Ownership. If you guys ever stayed at a Wyndham Hotel? Of course. Yeah. And we landed a job there, sophomores in college, at the corporate center down in Myrtle Beach, selling timeshares. And that's definitely was like my first real sales gig. And it's where I met fellow Memory Blue alum, Aaron Bravo. He was in my training class. Another fellow. Did you say Bravo? Bravo. Aaron Bravo. Yeah, Aaron Bravo. So yeah, funny enough, he was sitting next to me in training class. 
another fellow Puerto Rican who came from uh, University of Florida. His dad was like, still is today, a high up, I want to say, uh, VP of marketing at Wyndham. And his parents were living in Myrtle Beach. So he did his internship there and met him. And we became best friends pretty quickly. His parents became like, they kind of adopted me. I didn't have any family in South Carolina. So they took me in and really, really grateful for them. They've been amazing still to this day. And yeah, that was my first real opportunity to learn how to build rapport quickly and overcome objections, right? I had two hours with a family. Let me get all the discovery questions in. Let me understand some pain points if you want to say that. Okay, a pain point might be that your kids never went to Disneyland or um, don't have enough time to go vacation or maybe trying to figure out what I can attach this timeshare, this $50,000 commitment to vacation for the rest of your life within their budget, right? So it was awesome. And I realized that I wanted to move from selling to families to selling to businesses. And after college is how I ended up. You did timeshares two summers in a row. Yeah. Yeah. So the first summer was good. Second summer, I feel like it was a little bit of a hit and miss. I'm pretty blunt and transparent. And I'm a big believer in you got to believe in the product you're selling. And while definitely works for some people, for some people, it makes a lot of sense. Others, I didn't really see it fitting their budget and see it really better, like benefiting their family. So I had a hard time selling it. There was one time though that I'll never forget, like I had a family and there were a little bit of a language barrier. Like I am Puerto Rican, but unfortunately I'm not fluent in Spanish. I blame my family for that. But anyways, (laughs) I remember they were just no, no, no for two hours. And I wasn't really even trying to be that pushy. And the wife didn't speak a lick of English. She left, took the kid to the car and he was like, can I go now? And we had a whole process there. I don't want to get too deep into it. But basically, I go back to my manager. I'm like, hey, like, what can we show them? Like, Give me something to show them. Last, last chance effort. And I just a shot in the dark, hyped it up and made it seem like a pretty big deal. And I showed him a price that was like a last. I didn't really think it was going to work. It was still out of his budget from what I understood in the conversation prior. But after taking no's for two hours, I showed him this one price. And he said, yeah, I can do that. That actually really works. Let's do it. And I was like, oh my gosh. So sometimes you really just got to get those no's out of the way and keep trying because you never know what actually might work. And that was like the first deal I had where I truly saw that, okay, like you just got to work with the customer, understand what their budget is, get a better understanding and how you can make it special for them. And I think in that offer I gave him was like a free trip to Disney as well. And uh, we got his wife back up, did the whole spiel, did the whole deal. And that was a cool one for sure. <laughs> What'd you learn the most in that? And we'll move on from it. What'd you learn in that role? Was it what you just said? Was it something else? Because you did it for two summers. Like so a lot of people don't go back to that. So yeah. definitely picked up. Good question, Mark. But I would say I still have a couple of friends that are still working there today. And they're just like beasts. They're they're so good at their job and they're able to somehow, even with you know today's conditions, be able to still thrive in that space. But for me, I think the biggest thing I was able to learn off the bat was how to quickly build rapport, like I said, like being able to really get the walls broken down a bit and get on the same level with them and, and build that level of trust quickly and being able to uncover areas that would hit the right buttons, right? The right pain buttons, the right pain points or trigger them to really see the value of what you're selling and being able to create a sense of urgency that's what Wyndham did for me was being able to build rapport quickly, overcome objections and create urgency because you only had them there for two hours, right? They come in because they got a phone call or cold call or they came across a mall 
and they wanted free tickets to a show or they wanted a discount on their trip to Myrtle Beach. And then they come see me and I, I sit down with them. I show them a few properties, bring them back. And <laughs> I got two hours to try to make something happen. It's fascinating. So you went back to school and you, you were saying, so realize you wanted to go into sales. You said you wanted to transition to your senior college. Like, what do you think you're going to do? Yeah. So along with selling timeshares at Wyndham, I was also a, a key holder of this liquor store, Bootleggers, <laughs> in a local college liquor store. And uh, so that's another sales, retail sales there. But I knew after college, I either want to go back to New York City and try to get my foot in the door. I, w- I was looking at like, I had some friends that were in pharmaceutical sales. I had some friends that were like looking into striker and like medical device sales and stuff. And I just knew I wanted to get into a business that I can really grow with, a corporation that I can grow with. But after a few conversations with some friends of mine, including Aaron, Bravo's telling me, man, you need to get into tech sales. That's where it's going to be. That data's in the oil. The whole spiel you hear, he's like, that's where we're going to be able to go and, and make a name for ourselves. And, and that's where the future's going. And that's where we're going to be able to did you say Bravo said data is the new oil? Basically, yeah. Like does that. Yeah. And I just remember him. Uh, data is yeah, he oil. and I were, were both thinking along the same lines there. We're like, yeah, that's where we're going to strike gold. And he had already been working at Memory Blue actually for, uh, I want to say maybe like four months at the time. Or no, like, yeah, maybe three months at the time. And he's like, you ever been to Austin, Texas? I'm like, no, I've never been to Texas. The furthest west I've ever been was Ohio. And so I got a couple interviews and then... Next day I know I'm flying out to Austin for an interview at Memory Blue to meet a goat, Nimit Bot, and other companies. <laughs> and I got the job. I think I moved out to Austin two weeks after graduating once I got the job at Memory Blue. Excellent. Excellent. So you're down in Austin doing yeah. your thing. It's ironic that data is the new oil and you're in Texas, right? <laughs> yeah. And what was it like then? Like, do you remember what was it when you first started? Because it's like, we're talking like 2017 or 16, right? Yeah, fall of, yeah, yeah, like September. I remember I got the job in August. I came down in September. Yeah, so I moved out here. I I was staying at Bravo's place. I was sleeping on their couch for a few weeks trying to figure out what I was going to move into. And luckily his house that he was with, I think there was like four other guys there. And it was just five minutes from the office. So it was kind of perfect. And and I'd be befriending the other roommates. And they're like, man, you should just move in. They had an extra bedroom. It was like inside the laundry room, really small, but didn't cost me anything. So I was like, let's rock and roll. Let's do it. Just something for the meantime until I get some money under my belt, my pockets, I can move back downtown because I want that city atmosphere. And what did you think of Austin when you were down there? Like, You know, I loved it. I loved the weather. I loved the culture here. You can tell it's a young business-minded, young business professional culture, you can tell there's like a basically a draft pool from UT, right? So all the kids that graduate from UT, they either stay in Austin for their jobs or they go elsewhere. But I feel like when I came to Austin, Texas, if obviously it was a big culture shock from New York City, but me going to school in South Carolina, I kind of already got a taste of like the Southern hospitality and how things are a bit different. And this felt like the melting pot of the, you know, South Central or, you know, the Central U.S., where you did have people from all over, not too many folks from actually Austin, Texas, been there for like 20 years or whatever. So it felt like a little bit of a melting pot. I, I enjoyed it, but in comparison to New York City, it feels like a small town, right? <laughs> so but your family, don't you have family down there now too? Were you the first Rosado down First Rosado down here. And crazy enough, I never expected my parents to move out here. But in t- January of 2020, my sister moved here from Queens. She had a place in Astoria. And the year prior, I took her out for a birthday here, gave her an amazing weekend. She made some good friends um, with my friends. And she's like, I'm going to move to Austin Sunday. I was like, yeah, sure, Steph. 
And then she, sure enough, she moved here. And thank God she did because she got here just a month or so before COVID really took over and uh, shut down New York City. So she moved here in January 2020. And my parents ended up moving here in May of 2020 because I they were like, oh my gosh, you know, the, the babies are together in the same city. I hadn't lived in the same state as my parents in like eight or eight or nine years. So I have the whole family here and it feels great. I would have never thought I'd be here now going on five years, but this definitely feels like home. All right. All right. So you're at Memory Blue doing your yeah. thing. To take us back. Yeah. I remember walking into that office at that time. Gosh, I don't know. What was it? Like 15 employees, maybe? It was just two DMs. It was Nimit and I want to say the other guy's name was Will. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely interesting. I started on a PPM and I want to say I was put on like an Oracle. It was like a network attached storage system. So I was trying to sell NAST. I was really getting thrown into the ocean with the sharks and trying to learn a new technology on a PPM or Oracle and then also doing a PPM for like data canopy. And I want to say there was a Fortinet one that I was doing as well, but just trying to get my dials in, you know, smile and dial. I, we were hand jamming a hundred dials a day for sure. And hand jamming, jamming, you know, just dialing away old school, no power yeah. dialer. <laughs> I'm sure you guys are like, well, you guys have so much more tools than we had. But for me, like looking back now, I'm like, man, I really did that. Like just dealing with it, just dialing through and trying to be consistent day in and day out and watching everybody else that had accounts do pretty successful. I'm like, man, I'm on a pretty tough one. I'm selling in the federal space. I'm selling to the DMV for Oracle. And I quickly realized not everyone likes Oracle. <laughs> so right. definitely interesting times. And luckily I got put onto an account called Couchbase at the end of November. What was it luck? So the way it goes is we were trying to identify people who we thought had high potential, who came in and left like the right yeah. impression. And I'm sure your boy Bravo did a good job of pumping you up. And Nimit took one look at you and you two summers of selling Hawk and Timeshare. He's like, this guy. And I don't even know until we did the prep for this about the YouTube <laughs> and the cars. I didn't know until we got on the podcast. So like, that's why we probably put you into the deep end because you've got some experience before and some perspective. Yeah. So then it sounds like Nimit put you in, in, in the couch space. But so when you were coming up in couch space and doing this PPM stuff, who else did you all work? Who else did you work with down there in that, that Austin office? Are you looking to join an industry with unlimited professional opportunity? It has never been a better time than right now to start a lucrative career in high-tech sales. Memory Blue has launched hundreds of careers for accomplished high-tech sales professionals from our offices coast to coast. And right now, we're in hiring mode. Working with us will accelerate your professional growth and place you on a path to success early in your sales career. You'll get world-class training through the Memory Blue Academy program and sharpen those skills with ongoing mentorship and coaching from our seasoned sales leaders. Memory Blue is an expansion mode and we have immediate openings in all of our offices. We have been named one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. Magazine for eight straight years. Our award-winning culture has been recognized by third-party industry groups as the best in the business as we routinely add unbelievable benefits and rewards for our team. To learn more and apply to any of our openings, visit memoryblue.com slash careers today. My crew is probably myself, Aaron Bravo, Blake Irwin, John Campbell. Blake. Campbell. John Campbell Campbell. and Saxton. And we had Dot, too, and was there as well. Allie Williams. Gosh, wow. I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting a name, and I'm seeing. Your face. That's all right. Yeah, sorry. You know who you are. You know who you are. <laughs> yeah, no, great team there, and I really love the culture. Honestly, like we were doing events, it really helped me 
get a good friend group here in Austin, being new, not knowing anybody besides Bravo, right? And my roommates at the time. So I love the State of the Elephant. And it was the first Friday or first Thursday, forgive me. Although the Austin crew may have started it on <laughs> Thursday, just kind of yeah, no. doing the old Texas two-step. First Friday, but we did our Texas two-step on Thursdays, <laughs> two-step Thursday. <laughs> I love that time there. And it was crazy seeing how quick the office in Austin really grew. And I was only a Memory Blue employee for four months and change, now that I think about it, because I got put on the Couchbase account at the end of November and quickly got brought up to speed. I had December, January, and January is when they were making me an offer because their fiscal year starts February 1st. And fortunately for Blake Irwin and myself, we got hired out February 1st and became Couch, the first two Austin, Texas-based SDRs for Couchbase. Yeah. Wow. So that was pretty cool. Bla- blazing a trail because there's been over 20 who followed in your footsteps. Yeah. It's Amazing. awesome to see that number increase quarter after quarter. And even some of the folks that I brought on to Memory Blue now work at Couchbase, kind of follow a, a similar path and created a path of their own with Nick Foley now being an account executive there for going on a second or third year. And Stephen LeBay went went there and took the manager route and is now a, a BDR manager for over two years. So really cool to see fellow Sean Clears from Coastal Carolina join me down in Austin, Texas and take a chance on me and, and now be successful in, in their own path and just crushing it. And awesome to see Memory Blue growing as well. What did you develop? Like, what was your thing when you were in SDR with us in, at Couchbase? What was like, what were you really good at? What was your superpower? My superpower, man. Oh, there's just so many. <laughs> no. Oh, it must be nice. <laughs> if only, if only. No, I want to say my superpower might have been when I was working in the Memory Blue office is being able to absorb what was working for others really quickly and kind of just having a consistent outreach. And once I had my plan and play, like me and Blake got brought on and quickly I'm just talking to the top people at Couchbase that I can just figure out what messaging is really sticking, like what resonates with the prospects, what's landing you meetings. And like, if you can break it down to me, what are like the top documents and white papers I need to focus on? And that's kind of where I spent all my time. And I, and I knew I'm not the most technical person. So I would say my superpower was kind of leaning more towards on the customer stories, right? The use cases, something that I could easily wrap my mind around and whether it be, okay, these are the top use cases in the FinTech financial service vertical. These are the top in healthcare. And when I'm doing my outbound and I'm calling into those healthcare companies, I have X, Y, and Z customers that I can quickly give a a little pitch on and that I know will resonate with the prospect to take a meeting with my AE myself. So I think that helped me do well, but in all honesty, I had a pretty tough patch in, in Couchbase and I had a lot of turnover with my AEs that I was supporting where, and we can maybe dive into this, but I was, me and Blake were started at the same time and Blake crushed it. Blake hit like 95 to like 99% of his number. I want to say it was almost hundred percent of his number. I know he was just shy of, of hitting quota and I probably did 68%. Like I think it was in like the high sixties. There's a, a solid yeah, D. A solid D definitely. Not on the chopping block, I would go into work a little afraid sometimes. I'm like, man, I'm doing everything I can. I'm landing some serious, valuable opportunities. Like I I cracked us into American Express, which ended up being an 800K opportunity, which now today, or at least when I left Couchbase, they had over 75 applications running on Space. Wow. So I had one state, I, not one state, I had one rep 
And he was a absolute badass. He was probably one of the top reps in the company, but he was so well ingrained into his accounts. He was just already knew everybody at Disney, knew everybody at American Express. And those were like his key accounts that he didn't really need. Not that he didn't need me. Obviously, we need new logos. Meanwhile, other people had the reps that they were aligned with that were like, hey, yeah, I know this person here. Like, there's a meeting. I know this person there. Like, here's a meeting. And I'm like struggling calling into Southern California and calling to like these kind of more greenfield patches for a NoSQL database. And then having reps that were just getting turnover as well. So it was a little bit harder patch, but I bring this up because for anybody listening there, it's a BDR is like, I had a, a tough start, but moving into my mm-hmm. ISR role, uh, they, they took a chance on me, right? And I got promoted along with Blake to a junior ISR where we had a patch and we had to cover just a certain threshold, have you. But I took that and I ran with it. And once I got put into a closing role, I was able to close $130,000 by I think by the summertime. And I had more. The, the second person closest to me was not even $35,000 closed. So I, I came out the gate swinging. Wow. Once they gave me an opportunity to really put my skill set to use, I was taking the meetings I had. I took all the experience I had from outbound and creating meetings and now doing it for myself along with whatever the BDR could bring to our team. But it was really just, you're always a BDR for yourself, right? No matter what. And I was just able to set myself meetings and leverage the expertise I already built in a year and a half as a BDR. And I was able to not only hit 130,000 by, I want to say it was June with the fiscal year starting in February, but... That landed me a promotion that August, the same summer, once uh, senior ISR left, and I got promoted to a different territory, and I had the West Coast, and I took that, and I ran with it, now being a senior ISR with a junior ISR below me, and I, I landed a quarter million dollar deal with a booming IoT un- unicorn, and I hit my number first years in ISR at Couchbase. So that just showed me there's ups and downs for sure. Everyone knows sales is an emotional roller coaster, but... It, it was pretty awesome to see myself be able to take advantage of an opportunity given to me and really take the reins of an AE role and, and just start closing. What? So let's put a let's put a, a bow on that. So you you and I talked about this in the prep. Like honestly, like when you're having those terrible days when you're getting sixty eight percent of the quota and like your buddy is getting ninety five hundred. Why is that so valuable? Let's just speak to the people again. Because we have these SDRs working memory blue who are on these campaigns and they're going through ups and they're going through downs. Like we tell them, but they don't listen as much to their DMs or their MDs as much as they probably should. Like, why is that so valuable to you as an SDR longer term? Yeah. I mean, you really want to keep the the goal in mind, right? The bigger picture. And there's going to be ups and downs. But as long as you're consistent, I always say consistency is key because it's going to pay off, right? You're building the foundation for yourself for the year and you just never know who's going to finally respond to one of your emails or finally pick up the phone. And it would suck for you to not make that one phone call because you're kind of down in the dumps that day. But that one phone call could be the opportunity that sets you up for the quarter or sets you up for the year, right? So you just never know what's going to happen. You got to continue. Once you have a good plan in play, a good strategy in play that has been successful for other reps, you got to stick to it and just be consistent day in and day out because it will pay off, right? So that's kind of what I would say. Your mentality reminds me of what the Bronx Bomber once famously said. Hit us with it, Chris. It's hard to stop a person who doesn't quit first. Exactly. If all else fails, just don't give up, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. So talk to the listeners a little bit about, I guess, first, the biggest difference between selling data or technology and selling timeshares. How are they similar? How are they different? <laughs> they're similar. I mean, they both have a budget, right? <laughs> and they're different. It's the size of that budget. And <laughs> but <laughs> I would say from selling timeshares, like I said before, you're dealing with, with family, you're, you're dealing with people, and you're still dealing with people when you're selling technology, but you can get more bigger picture in the sense where if you're selling a solution, it's going to hopefully fix a person's problem. It's going to make a engineer or a DevOps gentleman or lady be able to have a little bit of less burden on them, not have such a hard time maybe managing this technology because you give them a solution that's a fully managed solution or a hosted, whether it's a DBAS offering or just a cloud fully managed service that we have today for many companies. So that, that can help make that person's day-to-day a lot easier and if you're selling timeshares, I can basically go ahead and show you a way that we can lock in these vacations for the rest of your life, right? So you're going in, you're on vacation with you right now. After this trip's done, you're not going to go and light your luggage on fire. You're going to still take trips, right? So there's an ROI story there or a total cost ownership story there, a TCO story. It's like, hey, how many vacations have you taken in the last 10 years? How much do you spend on your average vacation? That's a cost, right? If you not, what you spent in the last 10 years could cover you for vacations for the rest of your life and can take care of your kids as well to let them have a trip guaranteed every year for the rest of their life because it's deeded or willable on uh, those timeshares. So I'm probably rambling here, but I'm trying to think of a way that it's in comparison to one another. And they're definitely relatable because you still have a TCO pitch you can give. You still have a way that you can describe that's going to make it easier on you, like a flexibility or um, develop with ease, or I can travel with ease, knowing that you have vacations every year. But I might be off the point now, Chris. Get me back on the point. But no, 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 no. That's very insightful. I want to talk a little bit about the most challenged jump, whether it be from selling timeshares, business to consumer, to becoming an SDR, to doing high tech, then from an SDR to an ISR, yeah. then an ISR to the field. Like, what was the biggest leap and challenge for you? Yeah. I think the biggest challenge is going from, hey, I'm an SDR. I'm just focused on getting that meeting, that initial meeting, and then I'm handing it off. And now I got to repeat that and repeat that. And hopefully if I can schedule 15 meetings a month of those 15, 13 happen, of those 13, 10 should be opportunities if I'm doing my job, right? That little waterfall method. But you're really focused on one thing and one thing only, and that's that first stage, uh, moving into mm-hmm. stage one or stage two. When you're an AE, when you're a ISR or what have you, now you're taking that initial meeting and you're nurturing it, you're developing it, you're, you're moving it along the sales cycle to close. And you quickly got to realize that there's a lot more into it and you got to bring in the, the right subject matter experts that can help solve a, a problem that they have that can maybe help provide a message that will resonate with them a bit if you're selling a more technical product. You got to make sure that you talk to the right stakeholders on what methodology you follow, if it's medic, medpick. Right. You're always going after Bant in the early conversations, but I think Medic and MedPig definitely helps get your sale to a close. So that's the biggest jump, just knowing that you're going to have now stages two through nine or whatever it may be uh, once you move into that closing role. Dude, dropping down some science. So for our listeners and for me personally, can you tell me what Bant, Medic, MedPig, can you walk us through some of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, Bant, budget, authority, need, timeline. I mean, medic, you're looking at the sales process there. That's going to be your metrics, economic buyer, decision criteria, decision process, 
identifying pain and your champion. And then I think the P for MedPig would be like your paper process. So I see. Yeah, it's just definitely that helps you kind of frame where you're taking this deal along and making sure that you're on track, qualifying in and also qualifying out certain people that you talk to. There's going to be folks that you get on the phone as an SDR that you're like, oh man, this guy just gave me so much information or this lady's um, giving me all the goods here. It sounds like she's going to be the one that's going to be a champion for us to close a deal. And then it finds out that he or she might be so low down in the totem pole that they don't have the pull you need to get a deal done. And so you got to sometimes qualify out certain people. So that way you're spending your time with the right folks that are actually going to get this deal across the line. That's actually going to move things forward. So you're not just kind of spinning your wheels somewhere that you're not even going to get the solution in play. You're not going to get a POC kicked off. You're not even going to find out who the people are that are going to sign this deal when it's all said and done. And, and so how'd you learn all this stuff, like these qualification criteria, these sales methodologies? Talk to us a little bit about how you were exposed to them, how you learned them, and how you apply them. Yeah, hopefully for anyone listening out there, your company has a good enablement process, a good enablement program. I know Memory Blue does, and there's definitely some tools out there that you can do on your own, whether it's sales books. I mean, any sales podcast you find now, you should be able to find someone that talks about Medic. It's a very popular process. You can search Bant on podcasts today if you want to find a special uh, one-hour segment on how people use Bant to <clears throat> excuse me, to qualify leads. We have the internet, right? Chris, we have no excuses today <laughs> to get this methodology ingrained in our brains. But I would say, you know, if you're at a company, don't be afraid to ask your enablement team to see what's available for you to utilize. Fortunately for me, there's a long, extensive list of tools and resources at my disposal to help. And at the same time, I just joined a company a few months ago, so I'm still wrapping my mind around the technology itself, there's probably still 80% of training that I can dive into that I haven't even really tapped into yet. So yeah, I, I would say there's a, there's one guy, I'll, I'll give you the name after that, was one of the first, I think it's at PwC, one of the first people that created Medic. And he goes and does sessions with companies today to help make it relevant to your actual product and your solution and walk you through the whole Medic process too. So Ruben, I mean, you met, you mentioned, you said it very profoundly, right? We have the <laughs> internet. All this information is out there and you may have been exposed to it through your enablement team or through various methods, but just because it's out there, that doesn't mean people learn it and apply it. Somewhere you've done that. Like, where do you get that? I don't know if you call it motivation, where do you get that discipline? Where do you get that burning desire to succeed? Because I think that's the critical differentiator between you and some of your contemporaries who have access to all the same stuff, but yet haven't absorbed it and applied it. Yeah. And I appreciate that, Chris. It's nice. Very kind words. I, I like to think that I've always had a, a moment kind of hit me once I get into a, a new role, especially it's like a new fire that gets lit under you, under your behind. Right. And kind of get a <laughs> desire to want to find out what you can do to improve as a sales professional. And quickly you'll find out that you, your sales process might not be as good as you, as you think it is, or you don't know as much as you think, you know, so whether it be, pinging your superiors on you know what you can do to become a better sales professional or pinging the top rep and saying, hey, like great job on that deal last quarter. Or great job with President's Club. What are some tips that you can give me? And that's something that I went and did at every job I've, I've been at is trying to not lean on exactly not. I mean, I'll call it lean on the top individuals, right? And try to be able to absorb whatever they did. If they're willing to share that with you to be successful, 
And then also for me, it's just like, I want to go out there and like we said, there's everything on the internet. So I'm, I'm scanning through the top articles, trying to do a lot of self-improvement in both personal and business life. So if I can find a way to help me move deals along faster and take this nine-month sales cycle down to seven months, that's only going to allow me to get more deals in within a year. So the fiscal year is always shorter than, it's, than it seems, <laughs> and there's never enough time in the day. And, and you'll be surprised how quickly months go by and you look back and you realize, oh, wow, I got a pretty big size gap to close to hit my number. There's never enough pipeline. They always say to have three, three X or 4X of your number and pipeline. And you always got to make sure that you have a healthy pipe to fill in deals because deals do slip. So I'm trying to just do whatever I can to improve my sales game to make every conversation impactful that I have. I'm getting teenage Ruben vibes. <laughs> the, hey, I see you selling your car. I can do that better than you. Hey, I see your product review video. I can do it better than you. And you see these people selling. Hey, I can do that better than you. And you just figure it out. You study the top performers and then put the Ruben twist on it and then outwork Exactly. Them. Exactly. I think we all have a little niche or a, something special about each one of us that we can apply to give us a leg up or to improve on somebody else's accomplishments, right? Not saying that I can go do the job of an engineer right now, but for me being in a sales role and I have access to what they did to get that deal done, I can apply that to my own opportunities and I can put my twist on it and take the experience that I have. And before I had that experience, I can go and be outgoing Ruben and just ask everybody that I know that has been successful and take all those learnings and insight from every individual that's been successful and take the best, the top best practices from each and start implementing it into my own game and just seeing how I can try to do what they did, but faster. That was my goal. I worked my way up from a BDR to an enterprise rep and I was the youngest enterprise rep before leaving that company. That was my goal. I wanted to move up the chain as fast as possible. And now where I'm at today, I'm pretty comfortable, not comfortable, I'm never comfortable, right? That's where it gets dangerous, but I'm pretty happy with the space that I'm in right now. And I want to improve on my game in that space before moving up to the next role. Whereas before I just want to get to the next role as fast as possible. So I still have that desire in me, but I want to make sure that I squeeze as much as I can out of this current space that I'm in before moving up the ranks, right? So let us in on a little everything you've been working on developing. Tell us a little bit about like your most memorable win as a rep. Oh man, it's usually the biggest one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, it depends because there's two that stand out to me. I was fortunate enough to cover a a large patch at one point. So I had a few, like a variety of different years. I had one year where I had a small territory, relatively small territory, and I hit my number off of that. The next year, I went and I had a much larger territory. I had 32 states in my ownership, but yeah, wow, didn't hit my number that year, even with 32 states. I had the highest renewal number, and that was the year that I learned about how to handle a book of business and keep that retention rate high and try to get 100% retention rate plus some with expansion. Mm-hmm. So that was the year that I really learned how to land and expand, or at least just expand, right? There's a, a saying that I think is Ryan Serhant, if you guys have ever watched Million Dollar Listing, he says yeah. expansion always in all ways, right? So that year that I had that big book of business renewals, I'm figuring out how can I expand that, whether it be new use cases, new projects, different departments to work with, or if I'm going to load the cart with everything I can, right? With professional services, training and education. So trying to expand always in all ways, right? 
But uh, after that, having 32 states, I got shrunk down to a strategic role covering the Pacific Northwest. And that's where I had to get really strategic in my approach with the top booming accounts and trying to figure out how I can hit my number because I had a really big number that year off of just the Pacific Northwest. And I found out that, you know, Utah was, had a lot of Silicon Slopes, a lot of tech mm-hmm. forward innovators in that space. And that year, covering that patch, I was able to close a $1.5 plus million dollar deal. And I got an award, Louisville Slugger right here. That's big hitter award for one of the biggest deals in the company for that year. So that was awesome. And, but I would say the one that was most memorable for me was this um, unicorn IOT company, like my first year as an ISR. And we had a new solution. It was a a managed offering. And I was the first person to close a, a deal for that solution. And it was the largest one that year at 250K. And that would be my most memorable because I remember having conversations with the CTO and just thinking that it was going to fail. I thought this was going to not come in at all. And it ended up closing that deal last day of the year, January 31st, because our fiscal year ends January 31st. Last day of the year, 6 p.m. Got some gray hairs on that one. (laughs) And I met that company in person, which I really think helps accelerate deals and move them down to the finish line for sure, being able to come in person and meet them. Definitely helps with building rapport and trust. And unfortunately, with COVID, we weren't able to do that. But just last year, even during COVID, was able to pull a $1.5 million deal with the company that I was covering for two years. And it was just awesome to see like, hey, I had a plan when I got this account in my ownership, small $130,000 spend per year, moved that from 130K annual spend to just under 300,000. And that was in the first year. And in the second year, I moved them from that ACV to, at the end of the contract, spending $900,000 a year. And wow. that was the biggest one for me. And it was one that like, I don't want to put all my eggs in this basket, but I'm going to make sure I do what I need to continuously improve my relationship there and get them to buy in on what we were selling, but also because I know it provides them the value that they need and it's going to help them save money because they were spending a ton on Microsoft. And we were able to not only help them save money, but improve their performance for certain projects. And really just, we got such a good relationship there that on texting basis with the guys there and just really awesome team to work with. And they're probably going to continue to grow now with whoever is managing that account today. So that was definitely my biggest win for me, being able to pull in 600,000 plus of net new business and get them on a deal that's going to be both beneficial to both parties. Everybody remembers their losses, like the Trey Young shot kind of recently you get gets the knicks tell us what's a loss of yours that pains you first of all it's still a sore subject i'm a, <laughs> i haven't gotten over the loss on sunday and we play tomorrow so i'm hoping trey young isn't on fire like he was and i hope my knicks can step it up because we, we can't afford to lose at home the garden was <laughs> no yeah i would say man there's been a couple deals that definitely stung and i think as a rep when you come into a new patch the ones that hurt the ones that definitely hurt are when you take over an account and before you can even start working with them, you find out it's going to be a churn. Those always sting. I don't know if you hear that from any of your reps, just like you get excited about this account you're about to work with. And then as you get an introduction set up, they quickly tell you, hey, yeah, pleasure to meet you. But we decided to move off and we already put a lot of resources towards this new solution that's going to be better for us. And now you're just trying to do whatever you can to figure out, hey, is it a feature function? Is it pricing? Why? Like, what did we miss the bill here? And now you're just playing like therapist and how you can save this relationship 
But those always sting. But for me, there was one opportunity that you guys ever use Zelle. I think Chase QuickPay does Zelle. Yeah, Bank of America. Yeah, so a lot of financial institutions use Zelle. It's probably one of the biggest next to Venmo. And the company behind that, Early Warning Services, I was moving along well with them, net new logo for the company, having great conversations, and kicked off a POC. Right before I went on vacation, I went to Europe for the first time for my birthday. And I remember talking to one of the VPs there, had a great conversation. He's like, hey, enjoy your time in Italy. Like, check out these places. Let me know how your vacation is. And I'm like, great. I'll talk to you when I get back. I even shot him an email while I was overseas. Like, hey, I got bit by a travel bug. When can we come out to Arizona to meet? And I come back (laughs) from vacation and I don't know what happened, but just the mood changed so quickly. And there was, uh, I believe there was probably a couple chief architects there that had more experience with another solution. And it was one that they were already using. And they decided to just kind of lean on those expertise and stick with what they had. So we ended up losing that deal there. And it was going to be a pretty sizable. It was like one that I found. Uh, it was special to me because as a BDR, I found that opportunity for a rep and nothing happened. This was in 2017. And now I'm an AE covering that same patch and I'm picking back up where we left, meeting new people. And uh, a couple folks from a customer actually joined that company. So I'm like, great, reach out to this guy. This is someone that knows our technology, knows how we operate, knows the value we can provide. And he can probably help me broker a you know, conversation to the people I need to speak with. And got the ball moving and then boom, just kind of felt like the rug got pulled from underneath me. And wasn't much I can do because Couchbase is a great data platform that does a lot, but there's one use case where it does it well, but there's another product that does it better because that's all they focus on. That was the exact use case that we lost on. So that one stung because that would have been probably a 500K net new business deal. And I was still relatively new into the role. So I would have been a big shot, hot shot if I would have closed that one. (laughs) You would have gotten that slugger a little earlier. Yeah, I think so, for sure. As you've been progressing, I mean, you were at Couchbase for four and a half years, right? And I'm sure along the way, you saw people leave all, all the time. time. You, but you, it, you, you eventually made a move. Four and a half year tenure, right, Corcoran, at a technology company in sales, that is like way, way, way above the average. I mean, that's somebody who, who, who thinks strategically and with some intent. Thank you. It's a two-part question. Why do you think some people, and we see this like, we see some folks who leave Memory Blue, they get going with their career, and they kind of jump pretty quickly to another gig. And sometimes it does, a lot of times it does not a, a powerful move, a strong yeah. move to do. You know, what? why do you think that happens, and why did you not do that? And then what type of decision did you make to go, when you were to go leave to go to Confluent? Or Confluent, I don't think. Yeah, it's Confluent. Right. It sounds like Confluent, yeah. And for yeah. me, I think I was in a special situation where I was moving up, I saw my career roadmap, my roadmap to success, and I was moving along pretty well at a good rate where right where I felt like I was getting comfortable, boom, I got put into a new patch, a new role, and it was time to improve myself again. And then the promotions definitely helped me stay, but uh, more so I had a great manager. Shout out to Jim Mangiello. He and I were very well aligned. Um, He had my best interest at heart, and I loved working for him. And the team at Couchbase, the whole team at Couchbase was great. You know, nothing bad to say about them. I feel like some people might bounce around from companies because it could be maybe not all that they you know, thought it was going to be when they made the switch. Maybe you know, the recruiter did a great job and the interviews went really well. 
and then they get into this company and maybe the territory is not what it was. Maybe the book of business wasn't what it was. The management might be tough micromanaging them and that's not how they operate. So they make a move. Or sometimes you see they get into a role that they're maybe not ready for and they're not so successful and they have to make a switch somewhere else before they get the boot. Every company is so different. It's really refreshing to see companies that will invest the time in you to let you ramp up and, and make a name for yourself and, and be a revenue generating member of the team. But some companies are pretty cutthroat, right? So it definitely is discouraging when you see folks bounce from seven months here, six months there. Even when I see people that go nine months here, it's like, well, I couldn't make it a year, like, <laughs> right? But it happens. It's for sure. Yeah. And for me, I honestly, I've been blunt about this with everybody. Like I was happy at Couchbase. I would have stayed, but I wanted to get a certain role that I felt like I was passed on. And for me, I just decided, okay, well, I think it's time for me to start taking some feelers out there. And I didn't even apply anywhere else. There was somebody that I was really adamant about working with. And she was a badass in her prior companies and was at Confluent and reached out to me and we chatted. And once I learned more about the solution there, I was like, wow, I already see that product. You know, I already see Kafka in a lot of my prospects. I know they have a huge ownership of the market and they're booming. And if I can hop on that roller coaster, if I can hop on that rocket, go straight to the moon, then now's the time. And I feel fortunate enough to say that I have two pre-IPO companies on my resume that are going to do big things. So it just, for me, it felt like this is the right time for me to make a move that's hopefully better me as a sales professional. I never like to be stagnant. And I feel like I was getting a little bit stagnant at Couchbase towards the end of it, unless I got that role that I was really excited for. And so this move that I made now really humble me where I, I now need to put my BDR cap back on and build up this Greenfield patch coming from Couchbase where I was building up my pipeline, had my deals that I'm working, had my book of business. And I got kind of comfortable there knowing what I can bring in. And uh, now it's like, okay, I'm kind of starting from the bottom, having zero pipeline to my name. What can I do to, to change this as fast as possible? So it's definitely an exciting time. But yeah, for that two-part question, I think from a lot of people just bouncing around, it could be a combination of things. Did I answer the second part there, Mark? Sorry. <laughs> You did. No, you did. You did. I don't want to monopolize the airtime that I was given. My- yeah, Ruben. So a question for you. We talk about motivation versus discipline, and I think that it's discipline is more important than motivation. I'm curious, how do you practice discipline? It's tough, especially in a city like Austin, Texas. Um, <laughs> no. Um, how do I practice discipline? Man, it's it's almost something that's like within you. And I feel like you're going to have a lot of times where you see yourself failing and being disciplined and I think personally, it takes a couple of wake up calls for you to realize, okay, I need to be disciplined and you can be motivated as much as you want. But if you don't just put your foot down and focus and do what you need to do, do the task at hand and do it well time and time again, you're going to see yourself fall down a bit. And for me, there's been a couple of times being honest where I could have been more prepared for a meeting or maybe I, I didn't do my best on something. And looking back, it's like, man, that could have been an opportunity that I missed. I got a funny story maybe for offline. <laughs> before a pitch for the San Francisco 49ers. But I remember coming back from that trip from San Francisco, like, man, I definitely could have prepared better for that. And that's a feeling where it's a shitty feeling. <laughs> and I never want to be in that position again. That was a few years back. And for me, I think it takes those hard lessons for you to just have that wake up call and know that it's time to focus and get disciplined if you want to hit your goals. So where are we going from here with you? So like you're at a new company, you got a new patch. What do you want to hope to accomplish? Like 
next three years, five years. We need to go any farther than that unless you want to. But what do you see your career progressing? Well, hopefully in the, in the near future, you or Chris are making some introductions to some of these accounts. All right. Oh, yes. <laughs> Knock, I'm going to put you that. on the spot and not let you forget that because I am covering. No, I, I'll get that done. <laughs> I'll do it. So, yeah, hopefully close with some deals with your buddies in the near future. Down the road, I definitely want to be a, a top performer in this role that I'm at now at Confluent prove myself in this role. And hopefully when the opportunity presents itself for, for me to be promoted into the next role, I do need to get into that enterprise space and prove myself there as well. Had a chance to really do that yet since I did leave Couchbase relatively early, even though it was four and a half years. So that's still on my docket because for me, I, I want to get to a, a position one day where I can have a team, be a team leader, be a director, who knows, maybe even a you know, VP of sales someday, right? Or CRO. But for me, it's like, I like working with a team. I like mentoring folks. I still do to this day. And I hope to do for more people down the road. So I would love to get into a managerial position when the time's right and when I can say that, hey, I carried a bag in that role and I was successful in it. And I closed deals with these companies that you're working with today, whether it was at a different company or the same one. So that way I can actually speak with some credibility, right? So the future for me, I think, if all goes well, but... I have friends that are kind of executives, have been in kind of executives for 25 years, and they're still just successful at that. And they, that's all they're going to do. And that might be the route for me, too, if it's paying the bills and getting me where I want to go. That's always fun. But that's keeping it on the sales side of things. That's kind of where I see myself next three, five plus years. Nice. You got to get more Rosados to move to Austin, too. <laughs> As we kind of close it out, Ruben, knowing what you know now. Ruben Rosado, the night before he started at Memory Blue, right? Before he got into tech sales, what advice would you have for that guy knowing where you've gone and where you hope to go? Yeah. Tell him to buckle up. It's going to be a hell of a ride. <laughs> yeah, I mean, aside from that, just head down and get to work, really, because it's going to pay off. Definitely had times where you question yourself, you question your ability, you question if you're in the right space, but everything worked out. And once you get behind something that you believe in, a product you believe in, it, it becomes a lot easier. And I would tell myself, the faster you can get behind a solution that you know is right for you and that is actually right for its customers, <laughs> that's going to make this journey a yep. lot easier. Because sales is not an easy gig. But when you actually believe what you're selling, it doesn't feel like selling, right? It feels like more just consulting and helping the people you're talking to. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. That's some good stuff. <laughs> I learned from the best, right? Two of you and many others. So, Very little from us, <laughs> but more from others. But nonetheless, we appreciate you posting today. I know you said you're going to do it. And alum of the year, that's a huge, you know, I know you didn't win, but that's a stiff field of competitors. Someday. So you've, there you go. You've done a lot of great things. And Chris and I are proud of the fact that you worked for the company, no matter how short Definitely. it was. Definitely. Thank you, guys. Like I said before, just to kind of, elaborate not elaborate but getting back to that feeling right not winning alumni of the year that stings right i probably could have did a better job maybe i needed to tweak my application a little bit better maybe i needed to put more effort into that resume or that application or the worksheet whatever it was the second part that's a learning lesson for me i'm going to take that and use that as motivation to make sure it's a clear cut clear choice that ruben rosado is alumni of the year so yeah, you know what? That's probably a fair approach. And the reason why I say that is Matt Bright, the gentleman who won, he was runner-up or in the top three two times yeah, prior to winning. I saw that. So, yeah, it's a stiff but worthy field. And I'll tell you, 
there was at no point in my time before Memory Blue I would have even been voted a finalist, let alone top three or even winning. So you're, you're way ahead of where I was. Appreciate that. All right, man. All right, well, we'll be in touch. The pain of finding and hiring strong sales professionals is a critical challenge that is widespread and getting worse. The Memory Blue Direct Hire Service specializes in filling sales development roles within the high-tech space. And with a one-year performance guarantee and 0% interest financing, you can feel secure in your selection process when you use Memory Blue Direct Hire. As a company, we hire close to 300 SDRs annually across our five office locations. That's nearly an SDR per day all year long. Finding, hiring, and developing sales talent is the core strength of our business. Now we're letting the public tap into the resources of our world-class talent team, specifically trained to find high potential SDRs in order to close this gap. For more information on this service, check out memoryblue.com slash direct. Thanks for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beep. Thank you.